Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning, Romans 12, starting in verse 17. So go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word, uh, Romans 12, 17. And you can find a pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a Bible. And uh, find your way to Romans 12. Ask someone next to you. They're happy to point your, point your way there. Uh, before we begin and, and read this passage, though, I do want to just uh, give you an update. Uh, by the grace of God, we have about $400,000 on the way towards our, our project of uh, remodeling the entrance. And uh, we've, uh, by God's grace, uh, you guys have given almost uh, $19,000 in the last month towards that project, which is great. And uh, we have another month that we encourage you guys to kind of give above and beyond towards that project. And uh, they'll help us figure out maybe the timing that we plan to do this project and determining which year we'd, we'd aim to uh, complete this. And so thank you so much for your generosity. It's always exciting to see God's people come alongside and help and um, uh, give and, and, and aim to support the longevity of the ministry here at uh, First Baptist. So thank you for that. Let's uh, look at God's word. We're going to read this passage and then we'll study it together. Let's read Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And thus ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, after a speech that Abraham Lincoln gave near the end of the Civil War, where he talked about Southerners as, I quote, fellow countrymen in error, an elderly woman came up to him and asked him, why he was so conciliatory when these should be seen as irreconcilable enemies? And why wouldn't he just destroy the Confederacy once and for all? Well, old Abe responded with a smile and he said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Even though Abraham Lincoln consciously rejected Christianity, he was undoubtedly influenced by biblical truth. Truths like we just read at the end of Romans chapter 12, where God calls faithful Christians to resist revenge. And yet revenge is everything and everywhere to many in our society. It's part of the fabric of our entertainment. It's going to be a big part of our political process the next eight months, I'm sure of it. And for many Christians, it's a respectable sin, a sin that we tolerate because righting wrongs feels so right. As we come to the end of Romans chapter 12, remember that these verses are part of a long section of about 25 to 28 commands for living the normal Christian life that began all the way back in verse 9. These commands go rapid fire, one after the other after the other, and there's some debate about which is a command and which is kind of a supporting uh, reason. But these commands really help us learn to live sacrificially, holy, acceptable, and perfect to God, as Romans 12, 1 says. They help us act like the new creatures that we are, renewing our minds so that we can think and live differently than the rest of the world. Well, last week we saw the idea of avoiding revenge introduced in Romans 12, verse 14, when Paul wrote a very simple command, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. But this command was primarily directed towards the persecution that you'd get really within the own ch your own church, when your brothers or sisters might sin against you. But it's not just those in the church that should be blessed when they wrong us. It's those outside of the church too. 
And in our text this morning, Paul shifts his focus on how to respond to enemies outside the church. Notice the all language that is used a couple of times at the end of verse 17 and 18. That's how we know there's a, a shift in who he's talking about. At the end of verse 17, he says, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That doesn't mean that we can't apply these principles to resisting revenge to our fractured relationships within the church too because all includes all, inside and outside. That's why Paul elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 said, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is how the Christian lives, whether it's those who are closest to us or those who are, might be perceived as our enemies in the world. We do not repay evil for evil, and we seek to do good. And so as we study our text this morning, we're going to see four strategies to resist vengeance. Four strategies to resist vengeance. And these are methods to help you from taking vengeance into your own hands. Now at this point, some of you are thinking, you know what? I'm a very grateful person. I'm a very easy to get along with person. I'm not a very vengeful person. And you're about ready to check out because you think the sermon is not for you. But let me tell you something. Revenge, taking your own vengeance, is a human-wide problem. It starts when we're very, very little, when we hit our little sister for grabbing our toys. It follows us as we get older, sometimes in the form of overt aggression, sometimes in the form of grudges. Sometimes you lash out in anger in the car when that idiot, or whatever epithet you choose to use, cuts you off. At other times, your bitterness masquerades as pain and sadness or, or simply hurt. So yet, for some of you, you don't know what it's like to be perfectly at peace with most everyone that you interact with. Conflict seems to follow you from home to work to church, even into stores, and you wonder why everyone just seems out to get to you. Perhaps Maybe you're the common denominator and your highly sensitive sense of justice or injustice brings out conflict in your life because people just don't treat you with common courtesy as maybe an excuse for your vengeance that you take into your own hands. So listen, if we are honest, which is always good to be in church, at different times, we are all drawn to take vengeance into our own hands, to take God's place, even if it's to just silently seethe. So as we consider God's strategies to resist taking vengeance into our own hands, first, don't justify sin. First strategy, don't justify sin. Now, there's a fun tradition we have at American weddings. I'm not sure if it's in other countries, but it's a tradition of the bride and groom feeding each other their first bite of wedding cake. You guys know what I'm talking about if you've been to a wedding. I guess it's supposed to be a sweet first act of, of sacrificial service. But the more playful couples also use it as a way to smear frosting over their beloved's face. And every teenage boy who attends a wedding, and not a few of the young at heart, can sometimes chant at that moment, smash it, smash it, smash it. And if it's one of those smash it weddings, inevitably, one of them always starts it, don't they? And immediately, the, the cake-faced bride or groom feels like they have to retaliate, even going so far as to grab more cake off their plate and smash it into their beloved's face. And we all cheer, more mess, more revenge, hoorah, right? We intuitively think, man, they had it coming after that epic smear. And even though this can definitely be done in good fun, it also betrays our intuition to make excuses for vengeance, to assume that retaliation is always perfectly justified, expected, and maybe actually the right thing to do. 
This intuition leads many of us to make excuse for our sin, to justify our evil. We get a very simple command in verse 17, don't we? Look at the beginning of verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. I'm not trying to say that cake smashing is evil, okay, but this is a straightforward command that we need to apply to all of our life. It's a command without a caveat. If someone yells at you and falsely accuses you, we are taught, go ahead, just yell back. Give them a taste of their own medicine. If someone hurls insults towards your child, you have every right to give them a piece of your mind, don't you? Or do you? If someone wounds you deeply, then you have every right to hold a grudge, to no longer talk to them, to no longer communicate. No, there, there are no caveats. Just a simple command. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Turn to Proverbs 20, verse 22. Turn to Proverbs 20, verse 22. The thing is, we get really good at making excuses for our sin, especially when it's retaliation-type sin. It just feels right. We've seen it a hundred times before in our own lives. And sometimes parents even encourage it, right? I mean, how many parents have said or, or maybe have heard it said somewhere Well, don't come crying to me. You sure had that one coming. And how many of you aren't just a little bit happy when a bully gets back a taste of their own medicine? So we're prone to be right in our own eyes, to think it's actually good to repay evil for evil. But what does Proverbs 20, verse 22 say? Do not say... I will repay evil. Wait for Yahweh, and he will deliver you. Really echoes what we already read in Romans 12. But then look at the next verse, verse 23. We see an example of what this could look like. Verse 23, unequal weights are an abomination to Yahweh, and false scales are not good. Now, if the wealthy man has dishonest weights and cheats the poor out of their hard-earned money, we cry out, unfair, and we appeal to something like verse 23 and say, see, it's wrong. He shouldn't be doing that. She shouldn't be doing that. But what happens when a poor widow cheats the wealthy shop owner out of a few dollars? Or little old you is slightly dishonest on your taxes when the government mismanages their money anyways. Is poverty or being sinned against an excuse for more sin? That's what happened with the BLM riots a few years ago. Many seem to think, since people are rightly angry, I guess it's okay to let them break the law. And even if you didn't like the BLM riots, you're tempted to have different standards for different situations too. But the fact of the matter is, sin isn't less sinful when we've been sinned against. Listen to these warnings for those who relativize sin. Go go to Proverbs 17, a couple pages back. Proverbs 17, verse 13. Solomon gives us some stark warnings. Verse 13, he says, If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Verse 15, He who justifies the wicked, he who condemns the righteous, are both alike an abomination to Yahweh. So even if the evil you're justifying is your own evil, it is wickedness to God. And then there's this helpful illustration in verse 14. When we're tempted to return evil for evil, look at verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel, 
breaks out. See, once you go down the path of putting evil to evil and going from retaliation to upping the ante, it's like spilling water out of water skins. It's hard to get it back in. It's like spilling that glass of water. You're not going to put that water back in the cup. The quarrel that you start and the quarrel that you continue are both a result of your sin. It doesn't matter who starts the fight. If you continue the fight, you're at fault too. And yet we are so quick to place all the blame for a fractured relationship on others, aren't we? Listen, I've rarely known a conflict where one party was 100% guilt-free. But in most conflicts, people claim the other person is 100% guilty. I've rarely known a conflict where one party was 100% guilt-free, but in most conflicts, people claim the other person is 100% guilty. We are so quick to shift the blame, to justify our sin, to make excuses for our evil. So if you want to resist revenge, guard against justifying your own sin. Learn not to repay evil for evil. We'll go ahead and go back to Romans 12. And we'll see a second strategy to resist resist vengeance. Number two, pursue honor as a peacemaker. Pursue honor as a peacemaker. All change that we have in life comes with two basic steps. First, stop doing what you don't want to do. And second, start doing what you know is right to do. God calls this repentance, a a turning away and a turning towards. And the typical metaphor that is used in the Bible is one of taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. So you're to put off dirty, sinful actions or clothes, but don't stay naked. Put on clean, righteous clothes, okay? There's a put off and a put on component to living the Christian life. And so our job is only half done if we don't repay evil for evil. That simply isn't enough. We have to learn to be peacemakers, to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. Matthew 5, 9, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 21, For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of all men. So these twin ideas of being a peacemaker and that's doing what is honorable are what Paul tells us to put on as the Christian clothing. Look at verse 17 with me, Romans 12, verse 17 says, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Those are two ideas of living peaceably and doing what is honorable. Well, first, notice that this takes special thought. Right in the middle of verse 17, the the word that is translated give thought to do what is honorable, the, the give thought word in Greek is actually to have forethought. It's literally the opposite of what we do when we've been wronged most of the time. Most of the time when someone wrongs you, you begin to argue with that person in your head, don't you? You begin to kind of replay the hurtful words, the hurtful situation, and you think about it again and again until it literally makes us sick with anxiety and anger. Instead, we need to give forethought of ways to do what is honorable and thinking of ways to pursue peace. But being a peacemaker isn't going to happen instinctively. We still have the sin nature. And so it takes forethought, careful thought. And so Paul tells us, right, give thought, give forethought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Second, notice a peacemaker is always honorable in the sight of everybody. 
we are to give forethought to do what is honorable, which of course is at the end of verse 17, I'm sorry, the end of verse 18, to live peaceably with all. See, part of being made in the image of God is that every single human being has some sort of moral compass. And even though it's rare and hard to pursue peace when you've been wronged, it is certainly and always admirable. And I'm not talking about this fake, friendly smile and feigned platitudes, right? People in the South kind of have this idea or this stereotype, right, of putting on this plastic smile and say, oh, you have a great day or, oh, bless you, right? We're not talking about that type of fake peace, but a genuine desire to make peace. Consider carefully how to be at peace with those who have wronged you, even those that continue to wrong you. Oh, beloved, don't waste your mental energy thinking about how to get even or why they're just so wrong in what they've done, like we often do. Think about ways to bless, not curse, as verse 14 tells us. Lastly, look down at verse 18, and I want you to notice that being at peace with all men is conditional. Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a a fairly simple idea, but this verse is often misunderstood because we look at this verse through our own feelings on these situations that come up in our life. And so we are often to read this verse like this. Be at peace with all men, so long as it depends on you, which thankfully it doesn't because they're the ones who wronged me. Right? I mean, that's how most of us read that verse. And so then it quickly morphs into, be at peace with all men, so long as they're willing to own up to their faults, perhaps even do a bit of groveling before me because they hurt me so bad because it's all their fault and not mine. Right? That's how it morphs. And I'm not sure why it gets read that way, but perhaps it's because we miss what the beginning of verse 17 says, which says, don't justify your own sin. Maybe we don't understand looking for the log in our own eyes. We're just concerned with who started it. And so we intuitively think, since I'm not the one who started this argument, our peace doesn't depend on me. We don't humbly consider our own faults. And we certainly don't like putting a lot of thought into how we can be kind or pursue peace, even if they're mean. But that is exactly what this verse is saying. Right? I mean, it's pretty simple. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We need to think carefully about being peacemakers, about blessing, not cursing, because that's what depends on you. Are you thinking about how to do this? Is this where your mind is trained on? We should go to great lengths to promote reconciliation. We should avoid thinking about how much we've been hurt or how angry we are, and instead think about how to be a blessing to the people who seem to be against us. And sometimes... People will be dead set against you. That's why this verse is conditional. But we should be resolutely for peace as far as it depends on you. Do everything you can. Think about how this could radically alter your family life. I mean, starting with your marriage, right? If you were always the first one to rush to reconcile when things got a little bit icy, when cold, harsh words erupt, or hot tears, or or both, you need to be the one who is quick to examine your role in that situation and spend time confessing your sin to the Lord and then confess that same sin to your spouse. And lastly, think carefully how to pursue, pursue, pursue not so that you can make your point that you are right and they are wrong, but so that you can reconcile so you can love them and be at peace. And then think about how this would impact your children. 
What happens when your children bicker and fight? Some version of he started it, she started it, did not, did too, come out. So how can you train your children to apply this verse? To be the one who thinks about being a peacemaker in the home as far as it depends on them. Listen, it is a win to get your kid's brain to think about anything other than themselves for just a few minutes every hour. So maybe you can pray with them in the middle of this fight. Maybe you need to bring the fighting siblings together and say, Lord, with them there, please help child A and child B to both see how they have sinned before you. Help them both to want to be peacemakers and not to get what they want and not to get even. Help them to turn away from sin and follow what is right and glorifying to you. And this could change our families. And think how these verses could radically change your work. Instead of giving in to the gossipy, grumbly office banter that we tend to participate in we're going to be different we're called to be different even when you've been wronged we aren't all about getting even we are to think carefully about how to be at peace i mean just listen as i read first peter 2 12 and 15 just just listen keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it talks of bond servants, but I think it best applies to our works, workplace. And he says, bond servants are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Do you adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior, at work? In so many ways, we see blessed are the peacemakers. So look in your life. What has marked your relationships? Is there mostly peace? Good relationships with your coworkers, your friends, neighbors, people who've worked for you? Or is your life marked by strife? Do most people... Honor God because they see you as a peacemaker. Or do people describe you as hard to get along with, highly opinionated, high-strung, or even as someone who brings a gun to a knife fight? You know that person, right? Always seeking to ratchet every conflict up that they're a part of. Some of you may struggle in this area, and some of you may struggle in this area in a big, big way. But your failure doesn't need to mark the rest of your life. Remember, God's gospel isn't something that simply saves you, but it helps you grow in godliness. For when you remember that God placed his wrath for your sin, for your vengeance, for your hard-to-get-alongness on his son, that is not just a one-time transaction. That is an ongoing reality that reflects your present standing before God as an adopted child, as a beloved saint, seen as holy in his sight because of what we sang in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God took our sin and credited us with his righteousness. We know forgiveness, and we know that the Holy Spirit can give us gospel growth. So as the peace that we try to make with others reflects the settled peace that we have with God, this is something that everyone should look at your life and say, you know what, they're not perfect, but they're growing. And if you don't see the growth right now, take heart. God can do a work. Because we were all once enemies, but we're now at peace with him. 
See, Christians should make the best peacemakers because we know eternal peace with God. Well, there's a third strategy. Trust God to repay evil. Strategy number three, to resist vengeance. Trust God to repay evil. There's something bigger going on when we try to pay people back for the evil that they've done to us. When we take vengeance into our own hands, what we're actually doing is taking God's place. Vengeance on your terms, in your ways, and at your hands is really a form of idolatry because we don't actually believe and or simply don't trust God to repay evil in the way that he thinks is best. We feel the need to somehow get in on the action. This perhaps is the most common manifestation of idolatry. When we don't like how God seems to be working, so we take matters into our own hands and act like God. But Paul knows this type of idolatry is a common struggle. And so he softens the blow with a term of endearment, doesn't he, at the beginning of verse 19? Oh, beloved, loved ones, brothers and sisters, fellow laborers in this struggle with me. Beloved, right? This is not a term of kind of knucklehead, get this in your heads. No, he's saying beloved, dear ones. He's softening what he's saying. And then he says this, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here he quotes the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy to make his point. God's the one who judges, not you. John Piper summed up this point. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. Pretty catchy, right? Well, to help us apply this verse, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. Part of what makes the desire to take vengeance into our hands so strong is that we intuitively know God's wrath for sins is a good thing. Famously, many people are against the death penalty until they're not. And by that I mean they're against the death penalty until some crime, some act of terror is particularly heinous and thus they think worthy of the death penalty. It's because we have a good and correct desire for justice and for our state to enact justice. These are good things. We intuitively understand that crimes must be punished, that justice is always a good thing. But personal vengeance must always be God's to give, not ours. So what emotion does God's just wrath rightly elicit? Are we happy? Are we glib? Are we kind of excited? Man, they got what it's coming to them. So happy my enemies are crushed right now. I mean, is that the right response? I think we'll see here it's actually humble fear. Start actually in verse 26, Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And jump down to verse 30. For we know him who said Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are not glib that God's wrath will come on to someone who rejects Christ. We're humbled, thinking but by the grace of God, go I. And we fear for their souls. 
But as much as I feel that justice demands that I pay people back for the wrongs that they've done against me, as much as it feels right to do those acts of vengeance, to argue in my head against all those things that people have sinned against me, God has called us to be peacemakers and to trust God who repays evil, not to do it yourself. Turn back to 1 Peter 2. Just a couple of uh, pages to your right. Turn to 1 Peter 2. First Peter was written when large-scale persecution was looming for Christians. Persecution that w- would claim lives, many lives. This is a persecution that would rip families apart as, as Christians in just a few years would be lit on fire for garden parties in the emperor's garden. Okay, this is what's looming for Christians. Persecution that would cause properties to be plundered and, and whole churches to be disbanded and dispersed. And how should Christians respond to such persecution coming from unbelievers? Was this going to be a, a call to arms? Stand up for your rights. Fight for freedom. Is this what Peter's calling for? Absolutely not. This was a call to look to Christ. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Many Christians have followed Christ's example. John Huss was one of the more remarkable. John Huss lived and died about a hundred years before Martin Luther in neighboring Bohemia, or what we now know as the Czech Republic. He translated the scriptures into the language of the people, and he began preaching a gospel of forgiveness of sins from the Bible. For speaking directly from the word in the language of the people, John Huss was tried and condemned by the Roman Catholic Church to be burned at the stake. And when he arrived at the stake, he prayed these words. Lord Jesus, I cheerfully suffer this terrible and cruel death for the sake of thy holy gospel and the preaching of thy sacred word. Do thou forgive my enemies the crime they are committing. He then thanked his guards for treating him well and pleaded with them to turn to Christ. And as the pyre was lit, Huss started singing praises to God with all his might until he breathed his last. And his enemies hated him so much that his ashes were picked up from that pile and scattered in the Rhine River, the final way to desecrate his memory. Now, I doubt any of us will face anything close to such a severe test. And yet many of us will struggle to look past getting cut off on the road on the way home from church today. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's the truth. Many of us will struggle to respond with grace to an overbearing and incompetent boss in your workplace. Many of us will struggle to respond well to being sinned against in a myriad of ways just this next week. But if Huss could trust God to judge justly in his own timing, why can't you? Our hope ultimately isn't in our enemies getting crushed by God. But like Huss, our hope is that our enemies might be shown the same grace that God has shown us. For we are living proof of Romans 5.10. 
For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's the message of hope that we have for all. And so it's with gospel hope in mind that we are able to, point number four here, overcome evil with good. Our last strategy to resist vengeance, overcome evil with good. Like we learned earlier, it isn't enough to simply avoid doing evil, to put off vengeance on our own terms. We have to learn to put on something else. And in this case, we are to put on peace with our enemies, we're to put on trusting God, like we just talked about. And lastly now, overt and obvious kindness to those who don't like you and aren't kind to you. Go back to Romans 12, the beginning of verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. This can be literal food and drink to our enemies or simply going out of our way to be genuinely kind. Many of you know um, theologian Dr. Albert Moeller. He has a great uh, podcast. It's a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. It's called The Briefing. Highly recommend it. So uh, Dr. Albert Moeller took over a job as the president of Southern Seminary uh, I believe it's about 30 years ago now. And there were a group of liberal students, because the seminary had been moving liberal, theologically speaking, and these liberal students protested on his front lawn for many, many days when he first became the president. And every single day, Al Mohler ordered a pizza and a soda and made sure that they were fed and had everything they needed and hand-delivered it with a smile and a gesture of gratitude to God. Quite literally, he fed his enemies. Now, showing kindness does not mean that we will always have a chance to feed our enemies. And also, showing kindness doesn't mean that we acquiesce to what we are pressured to do differently. Maybe change our theological convictions to kind of cave in to the pressures of the world because, you know what, well, I guess we have to be at peace with all men, so I can't hold this thing because people don't like this thing. And so, uh, well, you know, this is not what this is talking about. It doesn't mean that we call evil good and good evil, but it does mean we go out of our way to be gracious and kind to our enemies, to, to pray for them, to encourage the goodness that we see in them. Like Huss, what did he do? He thanked his guards for their brotherly care for him in his final days. I mean, who does that? We should. And in so doing, what happens? Verse 20 continues, right? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And now some of you are like, finally, we're at the heaping burning coals part. Yes, I'll get even with my enemies by being kind. I'll be so kind. It's going to be so obnoxious to them. It's going to be like burning coals. Yeah, here we go. But is that really how we understand the flow of these verses, right? I mean, that's not what this whole passage is saying. That's not how you understand this passage. You don't get even by being kind. You don't try and be overtly kind so you can be obnoxious. He says, don't take vengeance into your own hands. He says, no, be kind. And perhaps the kindness will bring about conviction. And that conviction will lead to one of two responses. A further hardening of their heart and that coals, they'll, just, they'll, they'll hate it and they, they'll, they'll, they'll run away from God and sometimes that happens. But sometimes your kindness leads them to life-giving repentance that wants to follow Christ. Origen, an early Christian theologian from the third century, wrote uh, about this passage. He said this, Perhaps here also these coals of fire which are heaped on the head of an enemy are heaped for his benefit. For it may be that a savage and barbarous mind, if it feels our goodwill, our kindness, our love, and our godliness, may be struck by it and repent. And he will swear that as his conscience torments him for the wrong which he has done, it is as if fire were enveloping him. 
Our goal in kindness isn't to get under their skin, but to bring about a sorrow that leads to repentance and trusting in Christ. Turn to Psalm 35. Psalm 35, verse 11. David here gives an amazing example of what it looks like to put this into practice. As David was being pursued by his enemies, as they, as they did whatever they could to entrap him in some legal loopholes, right? This is the time when David isn't king, and Saul is king, and he's kind of one of Saul's chief servants, and then sometimes Saul really hates him, and then sometimes Saul really likes him, and he's kind of going back and forth, and, and apparently there were a number of people in Saul's court that really wanted to turn Saul's heart against David, and were trying to get David into trouble again and again and again. They slandered him, probably to King Saul, and they stirred up his heart against him. And so look at what we read about in Psalm 35, verse 11. He says this, malicious witnesses rise up they ask me of things that I do not know. In other words, they're kind of slandering him. They're, they're saying things that he's doing that he's not. They repay me evil for good. And he says, my soul is bereft. He is hurt. He's gutted. The pain of this betrayal of simply being sinned against on repeated and obvious ways, which, which actually might lead to death, it consumes David. Makes it hard to think straight. He's bereft. But, but notice what David does. He intends to be a peacemaker. He trusts God to repay evil, and he seeks to come, overcome evil with good. He knows these people. Verse 13, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. He commiserated with them in their pain as if they were family. He mourned the loss of their loved ones. He supported them when they needed help. These same people who were obviously his enemies. He tried to come overcome evil with good. So back to Romans 12. I think you understand how Paul then summarizes our whole passage here in verse 21. He says very clearly and succinctly, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just like Jesus prayed as he hung on the cross in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Being sinned against does not mean we get stuck in a self-defeating spiral of self-pity, anger, sadness, and bitterness. We don't have to become enslaved to our broken relationships. We can trust our judge and not hold a grudge. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit is alive and well in us. For we are sons of the living God, covered by the blood of Christ, no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to the prison of taking vengeance on our terms. There's a story of a pastor in Britain named R.C. Chapman. Now one day, Chapman had a wealthy relative come into town and asked to help provide for Chapman's daily needs, to perhaps buy him some groceries. Chapman agreed and had one stipulation that she go to one particular grocer. So she agreed and procured a massive order from this one grocer. But what this relative didn't know was that earlier that same week, that exact same grocer had gone up to R.C. Chapman while he was preaching on the street and had yelled at had inviscerated him, had cursed him, had hurled insults on him, even got up in his face and spat on him. And so after the massive order was taken and the name and the address was given for delivery, that grocer came humbled to Chapman's home with the groceries and asked one simple chastened question. What must I do 
to be saved. Beloved, many of us will struggle at times resisting the lure of vengeance on our terms. But may we be reminded that God has called us to be a, to a higher calling, a, a calling of love for our enemies, praying that God's wrath would rest on Christ instead of this poor soul, and that God might be glorified as you take on a new goal of being a peacemaker for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text, which convicts us of sin, which certainly shows our own failures as we struggle to take vengeance in our own hands. Help us, Lord, to put on these strategies, these habits for resisting vengeance. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to examine our own hearts and find the sin that's there and to not give excuses for the evil that we do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to look to you, to pursue a peacemaker status, to remember that you have called us to be at peace with you and so we can call others to be at peace with us, to remember that you are the one who promises to punish evil and so it is not our responsibility and to remember that we have been called to overcome evil with good. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to consider back at the cross work of Christ. Even as we are convicted of sin, may we look at the sins that we have committed and recognize that they have been placed on Christ as he shed his blood for us. Help us to look up, remembering that you have access, or that we now have access to, to you. That we now have perfect entrance into the throne room of heaven because of what Christ has done, because we're your children. Lord, help us to consider our own hearts as we look within, considering where we might have failed, whether it's in the topics that we've discussed today in this sermon or in other areas. Help us to confess these sins and turn them over to you. Lord, and as we look around, as we are a body of Christ to celebrate our union with you and with one another, help us to be grateful for the gift of a church family. And as we look forward, we anticipate that great day of your return where we get to see your great and glorious body again. And so we rejoice. We celebrate your goodness in the supper. Lord, help us to stay motivated to serve you as a living sacrifice for your glory and ultimately our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.